Father Anthony. Father Harrison. Are you excited? Excited about what? Are you excited? Excited about about what? We are recording on the first night of the NHL playoffs. Wow. No, I'm not excited. Why not? Your Penguins mean, uh, are in the playoffs. That's you, true. You true. said you said in a previous podcast yes. that this is the only time of year you watch hockey and you quite you know enjoy what? playoff hockey. I, I was I actually I'm going to yell at some people who uh, might be listening to this podcast. Uh-oh. A certain uh, family uh, friends of mine. They're supposed to tell me when this when these things happen. I I received no text messages, and I've been sick the last few days. Your I've Penguins been, are well. The, the, it's the first day, and the right. Penguins are playing right now while we're recording. I did see briefly on Twitter as we were getting on that I believe Kessel scored a goal. So that is that is a good yeah. thing for us. But guess who's winning? Who is winning? The New York Islanders. Boo. Who even are they? That sounds like a dumb team. They're a team of people who are from an island. Islands are real things, you know. This is interesting. We've never recorded this late before. And this I'm is true. Already, <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already over it. I'm just so over it right now. <laughs> Well, I gotta say, I'm really excited. I've, I've. This is uh, when I have some free time. This is peak for me because I, I have my <laughs> NHL Network app on my iTunes, and so I can switch between games during commercial breaks. I can watch another game. I have the game in. I have the Winnipeg Jets game in silent on my TV as we are recording right now. So if I suddenly like stand up and cheer, okay, it probably means the Jets scored. All right, that's okay? fair. Yes, I go ah. That probably means the Blues scored. <laughs> Father Harrison, we need to get some uh, similar interests because what I want to know is, <laughs> what did you think about the finish of WrestleMania? What's WrestleMania? The triple threat what's, for what's both the women's what's the... championships. The finish. I, I Ronda Rousey's shoulders were up and they're just ignoring it. Don't you have don't any know. feelings about this? No, none whatsoever. See, this is why we need to figure out something <laughs> that, we're both, that we're both interested in. Okay, we'll, we'll figure that out. We, we, we have some interests. It's just they're all about Jesus. Yeah, it's all like church stuff, <laughs> which is good. I guess it, I mean, that works. Uh, yeah, I guess so. It works. Father, uh, so I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. And welcome to Clerically Speaking. Yay. Guess how many hours of confessions I just heard? Three. Three. Well, technically, it was more okay. like... You were in the confessional for three hours. I was in the confessional for three hours. I heard maybe about an hour and 20, hour and a half of actual confessions. It was great though, because that was time for you to do prep work for this episode. I did. I did. After like people stopped showing up, uh, I started uh, seeing what was going on on the internet and we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, in a we'll little get bit. to that later. We'll get to that. Yeah, later. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, it was good. We, uh, th- we do this thing in the diocese. It's called the light is on for you. Basically every church or at least every parish grouping, um, tonight from six to 9 PM had confessions. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of like you have no excuse from six to nine. Every parish is having confessions. Go. Yeah. And we got to, I mean, because for that first hour and a half, we had four priests hearing confessions pretty much straight through. So we got That's decent good. numbers for it. That's good. We, uh, last week we had our parish mission here with Father Josh, who was on the episode last week. Great hit, and Father Josh. Everyone yes, loves Father Josh. Hit. Everyone wants Father Josh to take over the podcast. I mean, it's fair. Someone's fair. Someone more level-headed this, than one of us should actually well, and be look at it, it this way. It would be a lot less work for us. It's true. We could get all the glory. Right. But he could do all the work. 
That sounds like a great idea. I mean, he's in a mission diocese. What's he doing all day anyways, right? Yeah, it's not like no he's people. got anything to do. There's no people. <laughs> it's a mission diocese. Come on. <laughs> anyways, we had uh, our reconciliation service that night. And unfortunately, some of the priests who were supposed to come that night dropped out at the last minute. So we only had five uh, priests that night. We had over 100 confessions in my parish that night. Which is a big deal for your little baby parish. We have 300 people on the weekend. Wow, that's that, huge. That, that's woof, right. Woof. And so, and then I had a lot of confessions on the weekend because some people because I was in the confessional for two hours that night, and then some people just left because the lineups were just too long for them. And yeah. you know, if you're older, I can get that. It's, so on su- like Sunday morning, I I was in the confessional. I was running a little late, but I was in the confessional. It's like five minutes before mass. I'm like, I gotta go. I'll be back after mass, right? Well, I was back in the confessional for an hour after mass. Wow, that's amazing. I was so happy. Like, those are things, like, when those things happen, I am, like, the happiest priest in the world. <laughs> yeah, man. It's because Jesus good. is converting your parish. It's wonderful. Jesus is good. We, yeah, man, we act, yeah, it was just, it was a good time. Yeah. 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 Anything else you want to say? Uh, WrestleMania sick. was fun. Seven sick. hours of professional wrestling may be too many hours in a row of professional wrestling. I will say is that. Is that much. how long WrestleMania is? If you count the pre-show with along with the rest of the show. Oh, my gosh. And which you I were, basically watched, yeah. Where yeah. you kind of, and you're starting to get sick at that time, too, right? Yeah, yeah. So as I'm watching uh, wrestling, I, I'm starting to get, like, cold, and I just threw on a blanket. wasn't working. Like, my whole body was achy. So it was mixed emotions because I was watching the thing I like to watch, but also becoming more and more sick as it was going on. Yeah, <laughs> but now man. I'm all better, and that which was is great. Pretty... I'd rather get sick now and get better so that I'm ready for Holy Week. Did you have the flu? <laughs> I don't think I had the flu. Okay. I think it was just a little bit of a cold. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That's why I'm I'm getting that right now too. Like if I I'm sorry if you get any sniffling sounds in the recording, folks, because suddenly last night I started getting itchy throat three times in three months. Dude, like it's it's I don't. Oh my goodness! Like luckily at my place we have we have several priests who are running these seven parishes, so they were able to get people to cover for me. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, like when you get sick, that's that's no good, like for uh, your parish. If I get sick, yeah, I gotta say mass sick. Ugh. Do you, Although, what do you do? What do you do for communion? Do you distribute communion? Usually, how do you do I would. That? It depends. If like, like, uh, there was a couple weeks ago when I had bron or a few week, man, just a few weeks ago, I guess I had bronchitis. Yeah, and I actually got a we. So we have a retired priest, and he actually came in and helped out for a couple of days, which was actually super helpful. Oh, nice. Uh, but you know, he's not always available. Uh, but he was then, thankfully. But if I if he wasn't available and I had to celebrate Mass, I actually would have gotten someone to distribute communion because bronchitis is highly contagious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you do not want that to spread, especially with older parishioners. Yeah. So there is one thing I am not looking forward to, Father Harrison. What's that? Before we started recording, you were laughing maniacally at me. Do you remember why? No, actually, I don't. <laughs> it had something to do with my appearance. Oh, yes, that you look less crazy and younger. Because <laughs> I have cut my hair and trimmed my beard. Actually, I did neither of those things. Professionals did those things. Right. I only trust professionals with my, my cranium. Uh-huh. And uh, the one thing about, like, if you're, like, a normal person, you get a haircut, you might get some comments from your family, friends. You might get some comments at work, whatever, and then a day it's gone. <laughs> For me, with seven different parishes, that's not not the case. With with especially with like thirteen different Sunday masses, because there will be people who will only see me at 
the mass that they go to. So for weeks now, for weeks, I'm going to get comments on my face <laughs> and on my hair. And it's fine. People don't mean anything by it. But personally, I just find it just super annoying. <laughs> when the summer starts to hit, yeah. it gets pretty warm where I am in the summer. So uh, I just shave my head. Not com- like I take the number one to my beard trimmer and mm-hmm. I just shave off my hair. So there's a bit of hair there, but not much because it just cools. And uh, I am already anticipating, oh, we liked you with longer hair. Or, <laughs> and then when the fall comes and I start to grow my hair out again, oh, but you look nice with the shorter hair. And I'm right, just like, right. you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want to do with my well, hair. Like it's and it's not all people, about me. <laughs> it's one thing if like people give you like the nice like compliment. Like, oh, it looks nice or whatever. That's just kind of like the, uh, yeah, yeah. the normal person thing to do. How I don't know how to react is when someone goes, oh, I liked it better the other way. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, that's too bad, I guess. I don't know what yep. else to say. Like, what are you ex- Sorry, Caitlin's kids. <laughs> sorry, Caitlin's kids. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nick, you, can, you can use your skills. Bleep that one out for us, will you? Okay. We, I, it's the same thing for me. It's also a bit of a convenience thing because I just hate mornings with a passion. And so shorter hair just makes my life easier. So this is this is all this is more than anyone ever knew they needed to hear about uh, priest grooming. Now, do you want to know who didn't have a lot of hair? Who didn't have a lot of hair? Father Harrison. He had a tonsure. So Saint Thomas Aquinas, Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. I mean, I mean, par for this course, man. I guess so. I guess so. It's, <laughs> uh, so the uh, Summa, tw- I don't even have the text in front of me. So we're just going to go right into it. We know what the Summa tw- Theologica is. We know what the Summa Tweetologica is. Let's just do this yes. thing. <laughs> uh, I am going with one that I was really on board with when I saw it from F- at Efficacy of Grace engaged or repenting egg sorry she's usually engaged egg she's getting married in may but right now repenting egg uh if i were president of a catholic university the first thing i would do is cancel all international short-term mission trips and she goes on with the response to that obviously if people want to fundraise for international trips for professionals that's allowed but flying 20 kids back and forth for a week is a stupid waste of money send doctors to set up a clinic teachers to set up a school Pay locals to build community centers. I am kind of in favor of this tweet. Uh, here's the thing, though: the mission trips, and this is this is the deep dark secret of of mission trips in college and in high school, and any sort of mission trip where you're not actually becoming a full time missionary. The deep dark secret is it's really more for the quote unquote missionaries. It's more of a formational experience for the people going on the trip 
they sure yeah. they do good work but i think the problem is the what well, you're doing this for their formation and i think that's the, what makes it okay to do these things but there are cheaper ways than there are better ways to be formed than going these far off places and fundraising three thousand dollars to send the kid somewhere for a week here's the first thing it's like if you're fun there's just a, there's a lot of my here i use your why words i'm trying to not <laughs> i'm trying to be calm and patient and not say things that i'm going to get uh you know people are going to come after me on twitter for okay do it do it do it do it no 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 just give me a these have become a more of a of a way to spend i i've seen i mean okay i've seen the fruit uh, of these trips for people too but honestly generally when I, my experience of them is the fruits are there for some people but that's in the large minority people because it's it's a mission trip is a trip of service for others yeah that's going to form you but it's ultimately about being for others and to be for others means that you should sacrifice out of your own dang pocket. If you can spend $20,000 to go to school for a year, you can raise three thousand. You can make $3,000 and pay for it yourself. If wow. you really want and to you, do this. And you wanted to say something that wouldn't get you in trouble on Twitter, and you say that. <laughs> oh, what's $3,000? You're already taking out all these student loans that are going to ruin your life. Wasn't there $3,000 on top exactly. of that? Exactly. Well, it's kind of true, actually. <laughs> but. Oh, boy. There are. There's other ways that I think, I think honestly, there's, I, you can travel for your faith. And I think there is something that when you're younger, there's a bit more openness and freedom of life to be able to travel. But I think that's what stuff like a World Youth Day is for. And I think the fruit of a World Youth Day is action, is my experience is actually a lot more fruitful for someone's faith than going for a week long mission trip. Of and, course, but it's just you know, less okay, frequent. Right, I guess just less frequent. Like these things happen every year during reading breaks and spring breaks and then summer breaks. And it's like, raise all this money, raise all this money, raise all this money, which is a very North American mentality that I'm just kind of like, let's stop it with all this fundraising. Because what the other thing is, is often these people may not serve our local parishes per se. The, the, the fruits of it aren't going to be born locally either. Okay. Okay. So I'm done. That's a fair critique. I think the other side of this is That's that fair. you take these kids who are doing this, it gives them a culture shock, which is desperately needed in their lives, because maybe right. they go just because this is a trip and this is something to do, right. but it takes them radically out of their own experience. Um, it puts them in a place of helplessness if there's a language barrier or if there's other stuff going on. It's good for their formation, and it does do good in that area wherever they serve. And I think there's something that is good about that. How many people, I know people who've uh, felt called to this full time after doing one of these trips or felt a call to their vocation. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, I see the point. Yeah. And there's a yeah. lot of work that can be done. Like, you know, uh, sometimes I get a little worried, like when people are wanting to go to South America, when you could just go to Appalachia and you would still receive, you know, a little bit of culture shock and that other stuff as well. But I don't want to throw these whole things under the bus um, wholeheartedly. I think it's it can but still be a good thing to do. Here's the thing. I guess you don't need to go to Peru to find the poor. Sure. You can go to downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah. 
they're there. And it's a culture shock. One of the biggest shocks for me was being like those two places I served, which was uh, the poverty in Gallup. And then the po- like when I would go with the sisters to the Tenderloin, which is like the down, like uh, a really poor area of downtown San Francisco. You have people passed out on the sidewalk drunk and everyone just walking by. It, that's not a culture shock. I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying we, we don't need to go off. To, we don't even need to go off far away to do these things if you they're not bad things but like just look closer to home the poor are with you always you don't need to go off on a nice plane trip to get there if you're in steubenville go for a week to downtown pittsburgh or just steubenville (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what steuben's like so i don't know but uh (laughs) by the way you'll be happy to know uh the penguins have tied it up with the islanders heck yeah okay <laughs> sorry uh, all right we'll finish with that sorry i just i don't know i i'm still not sold i guess we're, we've been in a yelling mood lately you know what we really have um oh okay yeah let's do this let's do this this is from uh your new friend on twitter uh at carl stubeck and he says hey clerical pod and he ats us you guys should address the massive pro-choice dunking going on with nathan w pile on the next podcast do you know about this have you heard about this this nathan i have no idea who this guy is oh my goodness so this guy nathan he is a christian and he does these little uh, web comics and he's become increasingly famous recently because he does this um i think it's called strange world Mm -hmm. um strange planet uh comics which basically just it's a breakdown of normal human interactions as if like it's almost as if aliens were trying to figure it out it's really funny uh, that way he breaks stuff down cute slice of life kind of stuff well of course we can't have nice things on the internet father harrison so some article by by some garbage (laughs) magazine uh found a tweet he tweeted like two years ago where he just shares his girlfriend at the times post um basically saying that she He's glad that she wasn't aborted and that that's what the March of uh, for Life makes him think of, the fact that his girlfriend wasn't aborted. That's the gist of it. So, of course, now everyone's freaking out because this person that they liked is pro-life. So he's been getting all kinds of like negative traffic, all kinds of people like saying, "What you know, this guy's a bad person. Don't give him your money. Don't read his comics because he's pro-life. Right. Or anti-abortion or anti-women's rights, however you want to phrase it. And then they also do like these really heavy-handed bad parodies of his very clever comics that are all pro- pro-abortion and stuff. And then he had to come out with this tweet saying that his wife Taylor have private beliefs that pertain to their Christian faith. We also believe in separation of church and state. Our votes go toward the Democratic Party. Additionally, we are troubled by the Republican Party and we don't mm, want to become associated right. with it. So he right. says all that stuff. First of all, what Nathan doesn't get is that no apology is ever going to work. It's not going right. to matter once the mob goes after you. So whatever. Yeah. But he, wants, he can say what he say, wants to say. It's fine. But this – and this actually is something I want to address maybe with some of the things we have said as well on our podcast. Like the tendency to – tendency towards a kind of doctrinal purity in our culture is a very dangerous one where we can't – have conversations with people who disagree with us at all. We can't treat them as other human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't like normal things they do, like make web comics of aliens. Is becoming can't go to Chick Fil A. You can't you go can't to Chick Fil A, right? right. Um, and so that that is all that 
was going on with that. I I mean, it's it's also very. I it just seems like he's kind of like not doubling down, but like he's kind of falling over himself now, trying to appease to all sides. Yep. And I think you can't do that. Didn't really, you're gonna hold like, positions. Hey, guess what? We're Christian. We're pro life, and I make alien comics. Like, get over yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and but I was um, thinking about this tendency yeah, and also like the comments that we made about one Peter five and church militant and all that stuff and whether or not it's similar. Okay. Because we've gotten a lot of support for what we said. I think what we said is coming from a t- pastoral place, mm-hmm. but some other people have messaged us saying, Hey, they have, these websites have been helpful. There have been good articles. And is it right for us to say the things that we said about them? Are we kind of doing in the same way, the same thing that the world tends to do right now does that make sense that critique he my brain is kind of half foggy because of right this cold so can you say it again okay yeah, so, sorry sorry folks we're gonna rewind and go <laughs> so we're critiquing the world for not for the attitude where you can't have a conversation with yeah. someone you disagree with you have to yeah. vilify them you have to right. cast them out have we done something similar with our critique of one Peter five oh, church okay. and that sort of thing? Is that it's something I just I was thinking of a little bit. Um, and I wonder if that's a fair critique because we've gotten some messages saying that hey, I half agree with you guys, but these organizations they do do some good things. Um, they have put out good articles. They have been a help. So I was like, oh, it's interesting. I wonder if if we're kind of falling into a similar trap or not. What do you think of I that? I guess my, my well, I I would say that the difference there. Is, I mean, personally, I I haven't seen stuff that they've reported on that other news agencies do as well, and mm-hmm. I think do a lot better job. I think um, I I read a a blog post by a former employee actually of Church Militant, essentially saying like he tried to be more objective and essentially was being persecuted at his work for that yeah right and i think there is i'm not trying to vilify i'm just trying to say like sometimes things destroy the communion of the church unnecessary like unnecessarily like like this and this is an unnecessary betrayal of the church's communion that these sites do and i think that Mm -hmm. that's not worth supporting yeah. Uh, I'm not trying to vilify. I'm not vilifying the people. I'm not saying they're evil. I never said they were evil people. I never said that. I never judged their hearts. But we are. But they're doing but the a project, disservice. What they're the doing. Project, their project and the overall goals of what they're trying to do in the church, right. I think, uh, calls for something to be called out. You have to call out sin. Yeah. And sometimes, and you do not dialogue with sin. Yeah. Yep. There is no dialogue with sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, pure, plain and simple. So, uh, yeah. I mean, good good for him for kind of standing up for his pro life position. I just think it's not, I think he's falling victim to trying of the modern mentality of wanting to appease everyone, and he's slowly realizing that maybe he can't, and hopefully he'll right. figure that out. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, let's do something spiritual. Because I think we've we haven't done something like that for a while. Let's okay, yeah. <laughs> the good old Bishop Umbers. Hey, at Bishop Umbers, prayer is not a pious devotion. It's a transformative experience to depend on Christ, to identify with Christ's own prayer of total dedication to the Father, union with God, where the Holy Spirit allows you to look and listen to the Blessed Trinity. And I just thought, what a beautiful 
uh, way of looking at prayer. It kind of actually reminds me of the way Pope Benedict speaks of prayer in his catechesis on prayer. This idea that prayer is actually the most Benedict says that it's the most fundamental expression of being dependent, like the most fundamental expression of our creatureliness. Prayer is a sense that I depend on another. Mm. And that that transforms, right? I depend on Christ, and I need him to draw me into the life of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is. It's not just this, I'm going to say my prayers before I go to bed. I understand where it's coming from, and I, I just I, I, I hear that, and I know it works for a lot of people especially older generations. But I hear that at the same time, I think, ah, there's just, there's, there's so much more to prayer than just saying my prayers. It's not like I'm not paying a debt to God. I am entering into communion with God. That Mm -hmm. is the best thing ever. Yeah, I I agree. I think the benefit of quote unquote saying your prayers or, you know, your pious devotions is that uh, love also requires discipline. Absolutely. And the benefit to saying your prayers, um, the benefit to, to be honest, you know, for me, the divine office, which yep. very often is not a meditative experience for me. But right. what it does do is that it forms this habit in your life where you're going to prayer. Right. Also, when you are unable to meditate, uh, it still gives you something to offer to the Father. At least yep. I have something to say, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, Finally, I think that, oh, I want to make one more point about saying your prayers. Also, it's a beginning. How mm-hmm. do I pray? Well, you can study the Our Father. You can, yeah. what's going on in the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, what the prayers of the Mass, the Collects. The church teaches you to pray by saying your prayers, but you're right. right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the church you don't offers, want to stay there. You just don't want to stay exactly. at saying prayers. Every person listening to this now can become a mystic. You just have to show up for prayer. I was actually really struck by yesterday's first reading. Um, where uh, the Israelites are complaining against God, so God sends snakes at them to <laughs> to yeah. punish them, and uh, and then they recognize their wickedness, and so they go to Moses and they say, you know, what was it? They said, "We're really sorry. We're really sorry. Can you pray to God for us?" Right? Mm-hmm. And and it said, uh, and, and it said something like really, it was like almost like a throwaway line, and so Moses prayed for them. It's just like kind of really that that line really struck me because it's also it's been something I've really been meditating on a lot lately is that my job as a priest is really to pray for people. That's one of my essential roles. Right. And that that needs to be a priority in my day all the time that sacraments and prayer should be the first choices of my day and everything else should come after that. Well, yeah, I think it's also that. Yeah. But I was just going to say, like, the other the other thing I wanted to add with that was. I was always, I was also struck by the people. They repented. I'm sure they talked to God, but did they, did they do it by themselves? No, they went through Moses. Mm-hmm. You're the intercede. You're the intercessor. That's your job as intercessor. And I think that's actually something of a bit of a our priestly role because that's what Jesus's role is, right? He is the mediator, and so it's our job to enter into His uh, mission of intercession and mediation on behalf of the world. So when people, like I have, I've heard some priests sometimes to say, oh, when people ask me to pray for them, I mean, I pray for them, but I tell them to go pray themselves. And I'm like, well, no, I think there's actually an instinct. And I think that reading from, 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 from numbers yesterday kind of builds into that instinct. Right. The priest is set aside to pray. Mm-hmm. And, and then our activity in prayer by living what Bishop Umbers is talking about there, we, we, uh, um, we become models and people see this in us, that they're going to desire it as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a very long-winded way to get to that final point. But 
No, it was good. If Christ is the new Moses, which he is, there's something about Moses's action in the Old Testament where we can learn something about our own priesthood. So, mm-hmm. all right. Do we, do Are we you? go for the, uh, just, the do it, just, do tweet? just do it. Just do it. Uh, all right. This is from, I, uh, I am, I am, I'm guns a blazing on this one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. I just, we can't have a non-controversial podcast anymore. No, nope. People want okay, the fire. Th- this one is from our good friend, uh, constant guest of the show, Tommy Ty. Thomas Merton had an affair. Dorothy Day had an abortion. St. Peter denied Christ. The lives of holy men and women are complicated and messy, but that's precisely why they give us so much hope. Mm-hmm. So, I guess the context <laughs> for this tweet and a big hubbub on the Twitterverse is that there was an article published, yep. just uh, kind of, a, I think a book's coming out or something, kind of revealing what probably people in Merton circles knew, if you studied Merton enough, you probably yep. knew about this, but maybe not enough people knew, that Merton had a prolonged affair uh, with a woman about half his age, near the end of his life. And also uh, had troubles with his vows, like broke his vows as well, right? right. So this caused a whole big ruckus on mm-hmm. the Twitter. And mm-hmm. you were part of that ruckus, Father Harrison. You had opinions. Shockingly, I, you had opinions about things. I never have opinions about anything, ever. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this came out. I mean, I've known about... I mean, I'm not a huge Merton fan in the first place, but this is actually one of the reasons why I've always found it difficult to read him because uh, um, I, I found it very hard to find him as a credible person. And, and the reason is this. There is actually a, dis- a moral distinction between what Merton did, at least what we know publicly, okay? Sure. Between what Merton did and what St. Peter and Dorothy Day did. Because St. Peter and Dorothy Day both sinned. But did they stay in their sin? Did they rebel? Did they continue to rebel? And did, or did they repent? I'm asking you a question. Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought yes. you're doing your 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 rhetorical monologue. No, 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 no. I'm, a, I'm <laughs> trying no, to was, include was, you in the dialogue. That wasn't a critique, by the way. I was just like, I, I was I was captivated I by no, your preaching style. Yeah. Oh, oh Harrison, okay. my goodness. Okay, so no, uh, so they certainly repented. Yes. Right. When you're when I was reading this article, I'd be interested to actually read the book about this too it came pretty abundantly clear that Merton was um, obstinate in his sin, that he chose to continue to stay in the sin, that he, there was no, like, there was no qualms of conscience about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just, uh, it, like, I've, I've been saying this to people, you know, there's a real distinction between, like, a priest or a monk having a fall where they you know, enter into an intimate union with someone on a one-time thing, or maybe even just a couple times, but they're like internally struggling with it and trying to figure out what the next best step is. When you, like the highlights of the letters, it's like, he was just like all about, I want this. And like the, the writings that he has in his personal letters to her are kind of, um, a little spicy. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Whoa. Okay. Um, Ah, but, uh, when you're in love, you write the spicy love letters. Everyone exactly, knows this. Exactly. Um, so my my issue is it's hard for me, and I think it's hard for anyone to take Merton seriously, at least later on, when, when this stuff happened. Because it wasn't just his obstinacy in this sin. 
the other thing that the article brings out that the book brings out from and this is all stuff that's coming from letters so this is all like first uh uh firsthand stuff on us right sure um it's his obstinacy and his rebellion towards his superiors as well as a monk. And so I brought this up because I also brought in another uh, theologian into the fray. I brought in a Protestant theologian by the name of Karl Barth, who is known to have had a 10-year affair with a, his secretary. And she even lived in his house for a while with his wife and kids. Yeah. Yikes. And and Karl Barth is seen as like the epitome of Orthodox Protestant theology of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is why I have a hard time reading him. Cause, and this is my reasoning. Yes, everyone's a sinner. Absolutely. And I'm not denying that. But there's a difference between the sinner who is obstinate in their sin and the sinner who's repenting and striving towards holiness. Mm-hmm. There's a real moral difference. There's a real difference in the order of sanctity. And in my, like, I've always had this opinion that, that theology and spirituality really ought to go together. And so if you are, the, the true theologian is the one who is in a deep union with God and has the, has the purity of heart to see God, mm-hmm. right? If you're in an obstinate sin, you're, there's stuff closed off in you towards God that's going to make you hard to be seen as a true spiritual or theological authority, in my opinion. Sure. And that's where I that's where I struggle seeing Burton as someone to look up to. Uh, I have a few thoughts about this. One, I think the question is going to be raised: How is this not an ad hominem attack? Or, for example, Merton wrote some of his good stuff, Seven Story Mountain, before this, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the reason why a lot of people like Merton uh, for his conversion story, for yeah. some of his early writings, does that ruin his early writings? Like, no. does that? Does no, that throw, I, I, what do you what, what do you do now? Okay, you say right. he's not a spiritual master. Um, in in the proper sense, he's not a complete theologian like John was, uh, yeah. John the Apostle was. But right. what do you do with Merton then, or people right. who have had, or have you know, God has used Merton's writings to help them? What Absolutely. what do you say to that? Well, and I would say actually, um, oh my gosh, now I'm forgetting who said it. A priest on tw- Father Faulkner mm-hmm. uh, said this on Twitter that you know the church still looks to the early Tertullian. Mm-hmm. And, and approves of it. And I think that's what you'd have to kind of say here, that you almost have to break up his life into two phases. Uh, the early stuff is that honest, broken um, search for God. Although, interestingly, too, he fathered a child out of wedlock. Merton when? did. When? Yeah. In his, when he was studying in, in England. Oh. Hmm. And never did, to my understanding at least, I mean, I'm not a Merton expert, did nothing to support the child. Which I think is also another like today. If 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 um if a monastery or your diocese found out that you had a child, they would not let you enter seminary. Yeah, because they would say you need to look after that child. You have a moral obligation to that. So that's like another little thing where I'm like, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, you know. Um. Anyways, but I I would just say at the very least, then we I think you have to almost separate the early years from the later years. Though. I, I don't disagree with you, but there's something I keep thinking of, and I don't have an opinion one way or another. I think it's yeah. just interesting. Uh, Father Karapi. Yeah. Is any of his stuff, like, published anymore? Or do you see it ever? Like, do you see the CDs anymore? It has, does anyone, like, is he on EWTN anymore? His old talks? No. Nope. nope. If this had happened with Merton today, would we have the same view of him? Right. It's just, just something that I, I was thinking of. I'm, I don't have an opinion one way or another, whether that's fair or not. But here's but, the thing. This is very, this is the very in, 
interesting. I mean, I'm not trying, I can't put this into black and white categories per se, because I, I, you know, but my, and, um, uh, I'm not saying all, all the, the Burton defenders who've been coming out in this are, are of the same ilk or, or anything like that, but mm-hmm. there's been a certain, I've noticed a certain response by some people on Twitter, not all, towards Merton who like they oh yeah this is my thing this is it so the biggest response I got and this was for me actually one of the big shocks of it was people like whatever he it's not like he was married and broke his vows of marriage oh or or yeah or or it's like he he didn't hurt anyone because it was he was he didn't yeah he, he was just a celibate he just broke his vows of chastity and I'm like those are vows right the vows of chastity are there just as uh, the vows of marriage are there. And yeah, he broke those vows. He actually broke those vows. And that is something, like, to me, that I think that it actually, what I've been noticing in all this is that's the real, people have been betraying their actually lack of appreciation of the vow of chastity. Mm-hmm. And I find that very uh, disturbing. And a lot of people who who are kind of trying to look at Merton through a favorable eye in this. Not, not, I'm not saying Tommy is here, right? But because I, I know Tommy's not like that, but I'm just saying some other people I've encountered on Twitter with this mm-hmm. was this idea that really actually chastity is not that important. And, and not just that, some people are even saying sexual mar- morality is not important. Yeah. Well, I think that's because I think Merton has a, a wider cultural appeal. So maybe you get more defenders who are kind of on the fringes of the church or outside the church right. on the Twitter is talking to you. Um, but also like if this broke, if Merton was alive right now and this broke mm. in this climate in the church. Oh, he would uh, be exiled. He'd, he'd be, yeah, it'd be over. He would be uh, vilified. Uh, Interestingly enough. That's just what would happen. Yeah. Apparently Karapi uh, repented. He must have because apparently he's, um, is he, did he? I'm sure they're not letting him do any speaking tour stuff. Or right. So I wasn't sure if he just went quiet and went secular or if he just went quiet and went back to his religious life. Um, I'm not sure either, but I, this, I've just, I've heard this rumor a lot that actually he, he repented and that's a good thing, right? Yeah. That's a good thing. Or maybe, I mean, listen, there's, I hope so. I mean, right? this, is where, this is where Tommy's right. And I, and this is where I do agree this is where I agree with him. It's, um, is this idea that, yeah, every saint, there is a brokenness and a messiness to mm-hmm. to saints and to the holy people of and the spiritual masters and stuff like that. But the difference is, you have to always keep in mind, is there an ultimate repentance that shows forth? Now, it's true. Maybe we can't know everyone's heart per se, but often in their lives, they'll write something down or something like that to show, I, I realize I did something wrong with this. This was a real moral error. Yeah, and if like and repentance almost always there's an outward sign of it. Yeah. Um unless you know you're on your deathbed and you can't move and you inwardly repent that's and that's just as legitimate, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. Uh but yeah, okay. Okay, well, cool. There's, we you way probably talk forever about this. <laughs> but let's get to uh Patreon pontifications. Patreon pontifications. You support us, we read your tweets. So we are going off script today, which yeah. me, makes Bruce and Nick super happy. Uh Patreon pontifications, please support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash clerically speaking. All money goes to... Paying for not, equipment? Not to us. It goes to um, uh, producer Nick, so we can pay him a just wage for all the work he does, for equipment for us, and anything we make beyond that goes to the missionaries of charity. Okay, uh, so uh, today, this week's Patreon is... At Miguel Miguelito Rantonk, Michael, 
And he shares with us a tweet by Patrick at Patrick underscore Coffin. Very simple one. One we've addressed before. If you're watching hashtag Game of Thrones, you're watching porn. Thanks. Well, I mean, I don't watch Game of Thrones because I'm a good person, so I don't have much to say. I haven't seen, <laughs> you know. Actually, I just said that to the lady who cuts my hair today. She was talking about Game of Thrones, and I got to say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a good person. I don't watch Game of Thrones, which I love to do because it makes people so angry and flustered. Oh, my goodness. That's All awesome. I can say is that I saw the first episode of Game of Thrones, and I just knew, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need yeah. this in my life. Yep. And that's that's all I can say about it. I haven't seen more than that. There you go. Eh. Okay. I uh, I would agree with Patrick's tweet. I watched a little bit more in season one, but I had to fast forward a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> which to me is a sign that maybe I shouldn't be watching it. I watched it for a variety of reasons because it was really people were asking me questions. Can I watch this show and everything? Right. Right. So I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, like, I don't even know what it's about. And I remember watching the first episode. I was like, oh, I, I, and I also really didn't enjoy it. I thought it was a, I thought it was, it's bad. It's not even fantasy. It's like anti-fantasy. And it's trying to undermine everything that Tolkien's built up in fantasy. Um, but I, the other thing is, there's just way too much, um, yeah, there's just way too much sex on the show. <laughs> yeah. And we, sh- and I think, uh, it's very hard to justify watching that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you could actually morally. There's other stuff to watch. There's other stuff to watch. So I'm not saying it's impossible to watch. Right. Like I'm not saying everyone watches it. Is it's I, I, I just all I can say is I don't think uh, da, da, da. so. There, yeah. there's my opinion. A bunch of squeaking yeah. sounds. I just uh, I, I I would agree. Christians, I think... what was it? St. Paul says athletes give up a whole bunch of stuff to win the race. Right. I think the same goes for us. It can it can differ from person to person. Different people have different weaknesses and different struggles. I get that, but uh, meh. Yeah, I would. I I mean, and uh, yeah, I I I spoken enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough, Father Harrison. Because now we must speak more in presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral. Exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn oh, so much. Oh, it's my favorite part. Oh, it's oh, the oh, best part. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Quite. quite. Yes. Quite. So this week's not just presbyteral exhortations. It's not? It's pontifical exhortations. <gasps> but is it, though? Because this is breaking news in the church. Breaking news that clerically speaking. Yeah, I know. This is as timely as we've ever been with a thing. Yeah, literally the day we're recording, like three hours before we start recording, this drops. Pope Benedict addresses the church and the scandal of sexual abuse. And I got to be honest, I am a Ratzinger fanboy. I Like every good cleric is. And I was just super excited to see that he's written something. Mm-hmm. And very interestingly, he says that he he uh, talked to Pope Francis before writing this. He just felt that he wanted to address the issue. And uh, I have, obviously, thoughts, feelings. I have positive things to say. I actually even have a few critiques, which is rare for me to say about Ratzinger. Yeah, but I think there's room here because there's a few. Uh, well, I guess let's get into yeah. it. 
All right. So for those who don't know, he's written this. Uh, he's trying to address the sexual abuse crisis in the church, and he does it in three parts. He talks about uh, the first part about kind of the sexual re- revolution that occurred in the 60s to the 80s. The second part of the um, the document, he talks about the formation of priests and the lives of priests. And then finally, he talks about a proper response on the part of the church to this crisis. There were some very interesting kind of theological nuggets that I took out of this. There were some real kind of firebomb statements. Like he goes after one moral theologian and says, do you remember that part where he talks about, there's this one guy, when they're talking yeah. about religion, Veritatis Splendor, and this one guy who was all about this pragmatic view of, of morality, uh, of moral teaching in the church, was going to exercise every weapon at his force but thankfully god took him away from this life two years before very tattoo splendor dropped was, i was like oh this i mean here, here's, here's the thing here's the thing you know this is why this is gonna be crazy but this is why i think why i think uh saint paul wrote the letter to the hebrews mm-hmm because writers change the way they write throughout their life and depending mm-hmm. on the circumstances. And there are some parts here. That's a minor theological claim. I'm not going to like die on that hill. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. just the point is that like there are a few parts I'm like this is this is a retired <laughs> Benedict who like is very casual in certain parts of this letter. Like he well, offhandedly jokes or is it a joke? But he says basically, hey, in some of these like messed up seminaries, you could get in trouble for reading one of my books. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did say that, yeah. And that's just so unlike him to kind of talk about his own writing in his writing. I know. I was that's like, not is... like him at all. I, I will be honest. Reading this, like, my first impression was this does not read like Ratzinger usually does. Until the end. Until the end. But, like, it just it came off. Maybe, And I wonder if it's just maybe his age. Yeah. Uh, where your mental faculties just aren't as strong as as they once were. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little bit more personal. Yes. Um, and I think maybe that's the other thing is he often doesn't write in a personal style. Yeah. He writes in a very objective, analytical style. Mm-hmm. And um, so getting these personal touches was a little uh, weird because it's just, I think that's what, the other reason it kind of throws you off reading it. But yeah, and it could be also the translation. This is sure. like, uh, I can't remember who, this is from a Catholic news agency's website. They published the translation pretty much right away. And it was translated by um, Alan Christoph Wimmer. I don't know who that is, but mm-hmm. uh, it could be that some parts of the translation maybe were rushed or something like that. So, so the first part was very interesting. And I think in some ways we would read this. I mean, there were hearing about the way like he's talking from his experience in Germany and Austria and stuff like that. The experience of the sexual revolution there was really like weird. And he actually, this is, he comes out kind of guns of blame is blazing. Yeah. He says the matter begins with the state prescribed and supported introduction of children and youth into the nature of sexuality. In other words, um, sex education. He says that is the problem of this. That's one of the problems of this. And I was, I am not really against that at all. I'm just like, wow, that's going to be like really cutting against the grain here in society because well, it's so normative for us, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I think the thing is when you take sex education outside of the home and you take it outside of a Christian context and make it purely secular, and I think that's what he's critiquing when he's right. saying like these things are basically pornographic images that you're showing the kids mm-hmm. that you've now taken sex out of its theological context and place it in a purely secular context that's going to have an effect on the culture Mm -hmm. and and i think it it there is a healthy mystery to sexuality yeah to sex 
that ought to be like this is actually a very holy thing that can't just be seen in a mechanical way we're going to educate you in this and here are the mechanics of of sex and stuff like that and i think that's part of it too like i remember in high school that's when we would you know i'm i'm old enough now that it happened in high school now it happens in elementary school i'm just like really oh Mm -hmm. my gosh i was in grade 10 i think when we had to start going through that and i remember being like nervous as heck learning about this stuff this is all oh, like, yeah. you're in a classroom like, full of guys and girls and you're doing the sex education thing and they're talking super about awkward man <laughs> you know they bring out the bananas and stuff like that and you're just like this is really and i wasn't catholic or anything at the time but i just remember like i remember it really disturbing me well like, i think that's really disturbed me. Uh, that's a human intuition because i think right. human intuition is already knows that the, that sex is more than mechanics exactly um that of course there's a biological mechanical aspect to it yeah that's how you know stuff yeah. you know works but it is something sacred. And I think once yeah. you once you sterilize it like that, that's going to have an effect on the psyche. Um, yeah. So yeah, but but so but the other thing that kind of as I was reading this section, because he, then he's going to I want before we talk about the moral theology thing. Yeah. This whole section on the revolution of the '60s. I think there's two things here. First, he's really showing us the '60s were really a revolution unparalleled in human history. Mm-hmm. But this is something that's been coming up as it's been a bit of discussion on Twitter this week. And it's been something that I've been kind of mulling over in my brain for a while. The exodus from the church, uh, began way before the sixties. Yes. Like you don't just have a sudden eruption of rebellion like this out of nowhere. No, this, you know, history doesn't work that way. There's precursors, which means in the fifties, the people who rebel in the sixties were already rebelling in their hearts in the fifties. Yeah. Like, we lost people already in the 50s, which is very interesting because everyone looks to the 50s as the time of the great religious revival in North America and in the West. And it's to me, it's seeming more and more like that actually wasn't the case. It may have been a religious revival for the war generation, but not for the boomers. Yeah. And uh, they really just threw everything out. So, you know, um, people have been talking about this, and I think they, that... Like, for example, like Vatican II really isn't the issues in the church. It was trying to stem the tide of something deeper that was at play. I think the problem, or because I've been thinking about this too, and more mm-hmm. and more people are, are pointing to like something going on with the First and Second World Wars and how we not, have not examined that enough because mm-hmm. we wanted to forget it and what right. it really means. And we've, right. I mean, really, there's or, in our in Western culture, there's a desire to forget history, a very strong right. desire to forget history. And right. so we've, we haven't learned from those lessons. Uh, so I think what Vatican II tries to do is address the inner problems in the church. But when you begin to reform, you become vulnerable because you begin to look inside. And right. then that gives a, that vulnerability, that gives the opportunity for the malignant forces in the church to burst forth and really cause a lot of havoc. Mm-hmm. I think it's something along those lines. And the way we talk about the war, it's almost always in a celebratory tone. Like, not like look at how great these... Because the good guys won at the, at the end. Yeah, look at the sacrifices these people made. And I'm not trying to discount that. I mean, it, it really... It definitely were. But yeah. there were. But we've lost the moral sense of the effect of war on a society and a culture. Like, we don't... I don't think we realize just how devastating the loss of literally millions of lives has on a culture. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of in a throes. Like, I think part of it is a lot of these children grew up without fathers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because their dad didn't come home from war. That's Mm -hmm. a huge thing. Um, Or 
they're suffering from PTSD and stuff from the war and they didn't know what it was back then and stuff like that. There's just all these, the, the moral consequences of this war have not been properly analyzed and we haven't, we, we say war no more because we know, like we have a kind of a, a glossy sense of yes, war bad, but we don't really understand the moral significance it has on, on a whole society. And I think the sixties are what we did to life through war we've done through the sexual revolution and the and the and abortion afterwards they're kind of like the natural consequences well i think i think the spirituality of the war right right and i think this is what benedict gets at the end right and we're we're going off a little bit a little bit of a tangent with this but what he gets to at the end is the problem with the war where's god yeah like if this can happen then how can there be an objective god right Yes. And I think that's the heart of it. And he begins to talk about yeah. that a little bit at the end. Yeah. Okay. So the next part in part one he talks about is the situation around moral theology mm-hmm. in uh, in um, the church. That there was a real shift towards a kind of pragmatic. So the Second Vatican Council really tried to emphasize revelation as the source of um, our, our whole tradition and everything is what we do. But people kind of took this to the extreme and started to see... Uh, they wanted to look at moral things only through the lens of the Bible, which means that the Bible didn't talk about it. It's not really a moral issue, mm. like stuff around um, contraception, etc. But what really happened in moral theology, and he's really blaming this. He's going hard against this. He says, we, we form people to say, really, it's, uh, it's all about uh, consequentialism or pragmatism in your moral determinism. Like, really, he says, though they never said it outrightly because they're too clever to. Yeah. He was arguing, everyone was arguing that the ends justifies the means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if it, and so that means that there was no longer an absolute good. And so he's going after this uh, real movement in moral theology. And John, he says that John Paul II saw this, and that's why he, um, John Paul II released Very Touch Splendor on moral theology. Now, this is the real smoking gun thing. He goes, so I, I want to read this little quote from there, because this is just a little, I don't know. Sure. I was like, wow, this is a little stinger from, from Benedict. I shall never forget how then-leading German moral theologians, Franz Bockel, ha- who, having returned to his native Switzerland after his retirement, announced in view of the possible decisions of the Veritatis Splendor, of the encyclical in Veritatis Splendor, that the encyclical should determine that there were actions which were always and under all circumstances to be classified as evil, he would challenge it with all the resources at his disposal. It was God, the merciful, that spared him from having to put this resolution into practice. Bokel died on July 8th, 1991. It's the sassiest quote, I have ever, ever seen heard. Him. <laughs> I know, like, oh, sass. And we all, knew, we all knew he had it in him, right? Yeah, we yeah. all knew he was there, but he just, was just like, like crazy old man Benedict right oh, now. Oh, but this, um, is, this is for me the, um, this is for me the, really marked part on he he says that really what was lost in the moral attitude of the church was a theology of martyrdom he says this martyrdom is a basic category of christian existence the fact that martyrdom is no longer morally necessary in the theory advocated by people like bokel and many others shows that the very essence of christianity is at stake here because (laughs) what's martyrdom it's crucifixion yeah and that's christ's form and so he's, this is why he's saying, like, we are rejecting Christ crucified in this. Right. 
it, it the idea of like this kind of moral relativism and justify the means is that you never have to sacrifice for something. Yeah. You never have to go through the pain of something. You yeah. can always weigh things, judge things, yeah. figure out a way to make it okay. Yeah. And there are certain things that are just morally wrong right. that you have to stand up for. Right. So I think, so, so what he's trying to get at in the first section here is essentially there's two points. He's saying that the sexual revolution really had rampant implications in the life of the church. And secondly, that uh, the moral theologians failed to uphold a proper moral theology. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, he's, and he's blaming that that's part of the culture that was created that allowed the sex abuse crisis to come forward. Okay, yeah. So uh, just kind of go through this a little bit quickly. Uh, so problems in the seminaries that, one, you've got all these attitudes infiltrating the seminaries. And he says flat out. In various seminaries, homosexual cliques were established, um, which acted more or less openly and significantly changed the climate of the seminaries. You also had seminaries which were communities of seminarians, like some had their girlfriends at meals, um, there were married people, all this stuff. Like it, it wasn't supporting um, chaste celibacy. The that one that the really shocked me was what? the guy who became a bishop who was a rector of a seminary mm-hmm. who showed the seminarians pornography yeah because so that they could you know build up their defenses against the wrongs and evils of the culture which is and straight like, up evil and wrong and dumb yeah but like, i don't know for me it's like i'm at the same time like i'm scratching my head i'm like how did how did that's actually mass... predatory that's predatory grooming behavior by the way yeah yes it is but also like how did this happen on a mass cultural level like how did the, like what was going like it's weird. I think I think we're too close in history to actually have an objective opinion. People will be able to give a better sense of this in a hundred years. But I'm just like scratching my head. I cannot comprehend this. How someone could come to this decision. And then there's a few things he talks with regards to bishops and a few things I didn't quite understand what he was getting at here. Maybe you could help. Maybe you know, right about the uh, conciliatory, not conciliatory. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, conciliatory. Yeah, conciliatory conciliarity like yeah. like uh what is he, he, he's blaming this in the choosing of bishops um so i think he's probably talking like it's very interesting like i think this would be an interesting letter to dissect um especially with people who know uh, how the whole bishop selection process works but i think he's talking about this idea of um that really like the bishops choose the next bishop and not the pope like mm-hmm. conciliarism is the idea that right. councils have uh, authority o- over and against the pope even so he, I and think this, this is a is, critique think, right now that's going on with choosing new bishops. Like you, you'll hear um, people cranky about this, talking about like the the old boys club or whatever, right. and choosing the bishops. Like every bishop who's chosen knows a bishop or is associated yeah. with another bishop. That it's like this like tight inner circle of those who get elevated to the episcopacy. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it does happen, and it's it, and there's, oh, yeah, don't even get me started. We don't want to go. That's a rabbit hole. We don't want to go down right sure, now. Sure. Yeah. No. Right. Um, but I think he's he's just kind of uh, going after this idea. Like he says this, and he says there's another one. It's a really I wonder if it's the right word to use in the translation. But in the English, it's guarantorism. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck is that? I guess it's this idea like that. Like he's talking about the process of removing priests was not actually very strong in the law of the church at the time, because even if a case was brought about them, it would come to the point that no real significant canonical penalty could be brought against the priest. That they yeah. would be guaranteed 
they'd be able to continue in their priesthood essentially that's what the guarantorism is i think is i think he's what he's talking about yeah Again, and i've I think heard I this did, from from bishops yeah. uh, who like it was it was a struggle to remove priests from office because of their canonical rights yeah um that you had to like prove and a lot of times with these cases it's is the difficult thing that you don't have necessarily like proof but you have um reason like reasonable belief that this thing happened but you don't have like proof proof then right. there's nothing that the bishop could do and there was, there was yeah. a fight there had to be a lot of reform in this uh canonically yeah. is yeah. my understanding that, that was yeah uh, and he and that's why he and that was part of the reason they brought it under the congregation it's very interesting that he he attaches this immoral action yes to the protection of the faith did you notice right. that yep and i think i think this actually this whole thing is is saying one thing the more yeah. and more i think about it and the whole thing is that this is a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. I think, for him. Yeah. That, um, I mean, basically he makes the point at one point in time that no one who does these acts actually has faith in God. Right. Like, if you're a priest and you're abusing someone, you have lost faith in God. Yeah. And therefore, what your, your abuse is, in a sense, an abuse against the faith. That's why right. there was justification to bring it under um, the doctrine of yeah. the congregation. Well, it also, yeah. it, it brings me to the point that I brought up when we were talking about Merton, this idea of the unity between theology and spirituality. Yeah. Right? And morality, that, yeah. Yeah, and morality. These three things, like, uh, what you believe impacts how you live. And this is something he brings in towards the end, right? You don't, we don't, we want to not just... Uh, what was the word he was looking for? Like how we want to like present God, like we want to make him present. And that comes out of a spirituality. It comes from a life of prayer. That comes from a life of, of coming to, to learn about him and, and, and communing with him and, and encountering him in others and so on and so forth. This is the idea is that we have to make God present again. And, um, and he's kind of trying to bring this idea that when you do these immoral things, it actually is speaking against the faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gives a very, I don't even want to repeat it here. You can read it towards the end. He gives a very disturbing account of one person who was yeah. subject to abuse, right? Yeah. And it's not the first time I've heard something like that. Nope. Nope. In you accounts. see that in the uh, PA it's Grand Jury Report. It's yep. disgusting. It's disgusting what these people would do. Mm-hmm. And it affects people's ability to have faith afterwards. Yep. Right? It affects them. So he's getting at here this idea that there was, and there was, uh, he, so I guess what he's trying to get at here is like, there is a bit of the whole reason maybe, maybe, and I'm, maybe he's trying to bring us a bit more understanding about why bishops just move priests around a bit. Cause maybe they couldn't do, they couldn't do much about it. Like, yep. cause literally like in the law of the church, if you're a cleric, the diocese is bound to look after you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, it's just, if you really want to get into understanding what was going on, mm-hmm. part of the reason was that the church didn't have the structures, the processes to do this. Right. Um, and you can say, you, you know, they should have said, screw the scru- structures and just do what needs to be done. I think right. that's a fair critique, but these are things that people were struggling with at the time. And, and he even goes on towards the end saying like, you know, we, these are things we worked at, but they still needed more reform of which Francis is now working at. So, um, but let's maybe then move on to the third section and we can kind of give some closing thoughts because I realize yeah. we're actually going along here. Yeah. Um, so the third section is here is what, what's our way forward? How do we, how do we move forward in all of this? And I would, uh, there was two, I had two feelings walking away from this section. One is he's absolutely right. And the second is it's not enough. Go on. So he's talking about the problem of like practical atheism, something that we've talked about yep. on this podcast many times. 
And I think he's actually absolutely right. And one of the interesting themes that actually even comes up in this letter is his idea of like little conclaves of Christianity, right? Where like the catechumenate is the place where you can build the, ha- it's like a habitat for the Christian life where yeah. you learn how to, the ins and outs of being a Christian. It's not just something you do on Sundays. It's not something private. It's something that's lived and, and internalized. But I, I th- and I, I've already heard from a couple of people on this. I think they have a point. He doesn't actually really address what we can do about uh, ensuring that these things don't happen again to the best of our ability, structurally, policy-wise, etc. Like, there's no really like he doesn't really address what can we do to ensure that abuse doesn't happen again. He doesn't actually say that, right? And I think there's a reason for that. Okay, this is something that I've been struggling with. Yeah. If bishops aren't going to be fathers, then Mm. what can you really do? Right. Like what, what can really be done? If bishops aren't going to hold bishops accountable, if bishops aren't going to act like fathers, structurally, what can you do? Because the idea right. with the hierarchy is that the, you know, the bishops are obedient to the church and to God, that there is some fear of God in them, fear of their own salvation with the monumental office and ordination that's been placed upon them. Right. If, you are, if you have bishops who, who do not take that seriously, then what's what structural thing can you do that they would listen to that could affect it and so i think what benedict is focusing on here is the spiritual heart of the problem um and Mm -hmm. the in in this abuse isn't abuse is the worst fruit of what is going on in the church the most evil and most rancid of fruits it's the fact that we have lost faith in God and mm-hmm. things fall after that. And so I think that's what he's addressing. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I don't, I don't disagree with what he's getting at here. And I think he's really recognizing, and I think like, it's a theme that comes out a lot in his work is this idea of, of practical atheism, essentially yeah. that even Christians don't live as if God exists. Yep. And I think he's trying to offer a bit of a, like he taught, like, like the way he talks about the Eucharist, right? Like he had a very, I would say even a hot take, right? I'll read this little paragraph here. And yet, uh, what he's talking about, he says, let us consider, and, and it, it, sorry, this dot, this letter also really comes out as a defense of the council as well, um, which is very interesting to me. And I think that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But he says, let's say, let us consider this re- with regard to a central issue, the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Our handling of the Eucharist can only arouse concern. The Second Vatican Council was rightly focused on returning the sacrament of the presence of the body and blood of Christ, of the presence of his person, of his passion, death, and resurrection, to the center of the Christian life and the very existence of the church. In part, this really has come about, and we should be more grateful to the Lord for it. And yet, a rather different attitude prevails. is prevalent. What predominates is not a new reverence for the presence of Christ's death and resurrection, but a way of dealing with him that destroys the greatness of the mystery. The declining participation in the Sunday Eucharistic celebration shows how little we Christians of today still know about appreciating the greatness of this, the gift that consists in his real presence. The Eucharist is devalued into a mere ceremonial gesture, gesture when it is taken for granted that courtesy requires him to be offered at family celebrations or on occasions such as weddings and funerals to all those invited for family reasons. I was like, 
It's a bit of a hot, and he goes on to say, the way people often simply receive the Holy Sacrament communion as a matter of course shows that many see communion as a purely ceremonial gesture. Therefore, yeah. when thinking about what action is required, first and foremost, it is rather obvious that we do not need another church of our own design. Rather, what is required first and foremost is the renewal of the faith and the reality of Jesus Christ given to us in the Blessed Sacrament. And I think this is where he's trying to get at. It's like, and I, I, I agree too. I, I and I, I hear the concerns that other people have. I think often we just want, like, we need stuff now. What can we do now? And I also think he's trying to refrain from offering practical tips for another reason, so it doesn't undermine uh, what Pope Francis might be trying to do. Right. He's also mm-hmm. trying. He has to respect the office of the sitting pope. Yeah. But he's trying to get at this idea. We have to. Re- we we have to make the faith the center of our life again. We have to make it something that forms and habits our whole life. And what I found very interesting, because he actually re- mentions Romano Guardini a couple times in this letter, mm-hmm. a great theologian of the 20th century. And Guardini wrote this great book called The End of the Modern World. And he kind of talks about what, what Christianity is going to look like in the modern world. He says it's going to be an atomized faith. It's going to be a faith like where we're seen as individuals. It's going to be a dark time. We're not going to really be able to experience God, but we're going to have to witness to God nonetheless and all of that. And we're going to need these small communities where we habituate, help each other habituate to the form of Christian life when the whole world is, is going to hell in a handbasket uh, with its immoral lifestyle. And I think in, in subtle ways, he's kind of promoting the Guardinian agenda mm. or theological outlook with all this, which I kind of found a little interesting. I, I But I did find myself a little disappointed with that. And talking, not maybe not talking about some of the hierarchical corruption that's been happening in the church that I'm I'm sure he's aware of. Right. Yeah. And he was definitely aware a lot of what was going on and the structures. I mean, he was in the CDF. He, he, you know, so he doesn't address any of those things. And if people are cranky about that, I totally get that. Um, This is more of a pastoral and spiritual approach, I think. Um, But I don't know. So the one thing with this letter, I was surprised that, I'm glad that Pope Francis like signed off on this, right? Because that's what mm. happened. Yeah. So P- Francis like, oh yeah, yeah, you can you can send this out. Because if not, if not, that would have been a problem. I mean, like, yeah. wait until you're dead and let this stuff be published afterwards. But the fact that uh, Francis like okayed this, mm-hmm. I think, tells you about at least partially where Francis's mind is at, right? Right. Uh, so I think some people are already reading this as Benedict versus Francis. That's stupid. No, I, I, I think, I think um, that's stupid. I think actually, I think you could see this as Francis would say the exact same thing. Yes, exactly. Or yeah. else he would, he would say like, no. And I don't see Benedict as going against that. He's too much of a, um, he understands the church too much to do something silly like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, he wouldn't just drop. Like he, and I think that's why it's, he's really clear that he, because he understands the confusion that people might have. Well, Pope Benedict says this, Pope Francis says that or whatever. And I think he's trying to create a bit. I think it's also maybe a small act to try and show a bit of continuity between the two papacies. And, and in a way, while I will be honest, I've had some disappointments in the last five years. Sure. Because around this crisis and everything. Yeah. Actually him writing this today and Pope Francis signing off on that actually gives me a bit of hope. And to help me remember like what, while I may want to see action happen right away, um, maybe there's more going on than I can even know about. Actually, there is. <laughs> yeah. And that the, that Benedict did this with Francis's permission tells me that maybe they're more on the same page than I, I maybe even first realized. Yeah, I think that's good. And I'm tired. 
I I am my brain has not been working very well this episode. Sorry, yep. folks. Uh, so sorry to Tommy. Can't have you on the show because we went way too long talking about your darn tweet. So <laughs> too bad. Next week you can come on. Okay. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Spotify. Now we're on Spotify. Yeah, I think we're on Stitcher too. Oh, like Stitcher, Stitcher. Sorry, Stitcher. That's the one. We're on Stitcher now. We're on all of them now. So I think we're on Spotify. Like us on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, where you can find us at Clerical Pod on Twitter. You can find me. I'm at Fr Harrison. I'm at uh, Father Sharapa. And we'll see you next week. God bless. Peace.